The reading today is from Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 38. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit to the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your, your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. The word of the Lord. All right. Thank you, Ben. Appreciate that. Uh, oh, good morning, Redemption. How you doing? Good to see you. Um, before we get started, I want to just make one more reminder because this is the last time we're going to be able to remind you of this. Uh, those of you... And I know uh, from experience there are many of you in the congregation um, who try to time this and because of end of the year income and bonuses and things, I just want to remind you that the calendar is a little bit goofy this year. Uh, next Sunday is actually Christmas Day. Most of you probably won't be here. And then the following Sunday is actually January 1st and you cannot give on January 1st and get the tax credit for 2016. So it's possible that you're going to have two weeks where you think you've got plenty of time, but you really don't, you're not going to be here. So I just want to remind you about that. You can give online, um, and really the key is just making sure it's in our hands before the end of the year. Um, it's not a postmark deal, it's whether or not it's in our hands. So um, just make sure that if you're planning all those things, if you're a planner, that you, you take into account how strange the calendar is. Um, this year. Let me pray, and then we're going to get into this last message of Advent titled, The People's Champ, okay? Lord God, we are thankful for who you are. Uh, we're grateful for what you've done through your son, Jesus Christ, and what you continue to do, and God, for the filling of the Holy Spirit, and for your word, and its wisdom, and its truth, and its reliability, and its authority. And God, as we uh, study this passage, and there's a lot of verses here, and so we can't, we can't cover everything, but, but by your spirit, we can know what it is that you'd like us to wrestle with and to know and to be reassured by. And so that's our prayer this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in this message, we look at, at there we go, all right. Hey, that was an awesome catch. Come on now. Hey, Liz. I'm going to use the paper, paper clip now. What did you say to me? That was adventful. That was adventful. Yes, thank you. 
the king of puns down here, ladies and gentlemen. Matt Gale, yes. I'm so, never mind. I was going to say something about his Southern Baptist heritage, but I guess I won't. Um, glad some of you got that. Okay. Um, so we look at two people, Simeon and Anna, who really, if you're talking about like a play, they're, they're bit players. They're, they have bit parts. I don't know if this comparison works or not, but they're kind of like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. They're, they're not that big of a deal, but they are uh, because we believe that they are representative of who the gospel is for, and that's for everybody. They just represent everybody. Uh, and, and there are some things about them that we need to know and we need to understand that I think will strengthen us in our faith as well and also help to explain a little bit about what the gospel should be doing in our lives and, and understand that it is the fulfillment that they're excited about. Simeon and Anna are so excited about the fulfillment of this messianic prophecy, which had been around for hundreds and hundreds of years, and they know now, they're two people who know now, it's Jesus, it's the baby Jesus. This is really exciting. And so the big idea today is that the good news of Christmas is that salvation is for all people and is offered through, through the life and the work of Jesus Christ. And when we say the life and the work of Jesus, we need to remember that it's not just his life that he lived in his ministry when he was on this earth, but that Jesus is still alive. He's resurrected, he ascended to heaven, and the last thing that we're told as he goes in the beginning of Luke, I'm sorry, in the beginning of Acts, as he goes up to heaven, the last thing we're told is that he's going to come back exactly the same way that he left. And so he is still alive, and his spirit is working in us right now. That's important. I also think this is one of the, one of the greatest passages in the Bible that, that is often overlooked and rarely preached on, again, because it just doesn't really carry with it all of the sort of the warm fuzzies of the Christmas tradition and, and the Christmas story. But again, it's deep, and it has, uh, I, I think, important implications for us. And I got to tell you something. The Holy Spirit is big in this passage. It is big. You, you cannot miss that if you're reading well. I, I think we need to start in verse 21, the verse right before it, in order to get just a little bit of context. We looked at this verse a couple of weeks ago. Verse 21 says this, And at the end of eight days, when he, Jesus, was circumcised, that eight days is a big deal, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So circumcision on the eighth day for a, a, a Jew, for a Jewish baby, is really important. It's, it's talked about in Genesis 17. It's talked about in Leviticus 12. That's what you were di did if you were a devout, God-honoring Jew. And if you remember in the letter to uh, the church at Philippi, Paul makes a big deal about this in chapter 3. He says, look, uh, when he gives his, his resume, his religious resume, he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day, not the seventh, not the ninth. Now, understand this circumcision, this idea of circumcision, is not what saves God's person, 
but rather what God's person does in response to God's favor, to God's salvation. It's in that respect, circumcision is similar to baptism for the Christian. It's, it, baptism is not what saves us, but it is what we do in response to God's saving work in our lives. And then the name, of course, Jesus. And that can be interpreted two different ways, and we should interpret it both ways. It means God saves and God with us, both, both of those things, okay? And then you look at the first three verses of this passage. These are really all Leviticus chapter 12. This is coming right out of the Torah, the Old Testament law. So 22 through 24. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him, Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So the purification is primarily about the mother. You know, the birthing process has lots of blood, and blood, according to the Torah, is what makes things impure or unclean. And so there was a time of purification after the birth. It was 40 days. Mary had to stay in the house for 40 days for this time of purification. But then she also had to go to the temple. So she had to go to Jerusalem. This necessitated uh, a trip for her purification rites in addition to the 40 days. This is all spelled out in, in Leviticus. And then the burnt offering and the sin offering of the parents for the newborn in the temple as well Again, that's partly for the purification of Mary, but the burnt offering is primarily for the redemption of the newborn child as well, dedicating the child to the Lord. Now, what's interesting is when you read in Leviticus, you understand that that burnt offering, that first offering, is really supposed to be a lamb. Now, I want you to think about what it's like 2,100 years ago, or in the case of Leviticus, four, three or 4,000 years ago, what did assets look like in that day? A lamb was a big deal. Yes, livestock. A lamb was a big deal. A lamb was a valuable prized asset. And so the law calls upon the lamb, but not everybody, in fact, rarely could anybody actually afford to sacrifice an entire lamb. That would be devastating to many, fam many families if they had a lamb, that was it. That was the extent of the assets on their balance sheet. And so the law actually makes a provision that if you can't handle it financially, you can do a turtle dove or a pigeon. You can do that instead. And so the point of this is that verse 24 clearly assumes the financial poverty, poverty of the holy family. This is something that would have been absolutely clear in their context, but maybe a little bit more obscure in ours. So when we talk about the poverty of the Holy Family, this is one of the places in Scripture where we find this because, because we study history, we study context, and we understand that. And then, of course, the first male born to a Jewish family is very special. There's all kinds of issues with that. We have the, prodig uh, the, the parable of the prodigal son uh, in Luke that, that sort of expounds on that, but certainly all sorts of stuff 
in the Old Testament that talks about the value of the firstborn male in a Jewish family. That's the one who's going to carry on, be responsible for carrying on the name of the family. The firstborn male in a Jewish family always got a double portion of whatever inheritance was left by the father. They got a double portion, and then everybody else got a single portion. Okay, so that was a big deal. And then maybe the biggest deal of all is that firstborn also had a responsibility to be, in a sense, the, uh, the social security plan for the, any females, especially the mother, in, in the family. So Mary's counting on Jesus in a financial way because they would provide financially for the mother especially. And so in looking at that, we might remember that at the cross and at the execution of Jesus, while Mary was still not quite clear, as, as same with the disciples, not quite clear about what was happening until after the resurrection and the Holy Spirit came, this was devastating for Mary, not just that she was watching her son be executed, but also she was seeing part of her economic viability and security going away. It was really, really hard on Mary. And this passage kind of brings that out in advance of the crucifixion as well. And then look at verse 25. We get introduced to Simeon. Now there was a man in Simeon, who's, uh, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now we don't know very much about Simeon except for what we see right here. He lives in Jerusalem. It says that he's righteous and devout. What does that mean? Well, it means that he honored the law of Moses as a good Jewish man would. And when he did not keep it, when he violated the law, he did all of the proper sacrifices and offerings and practices that were required by the law to try to make him right in God's eyes. And again, that's very similar language to what we find in Philippians, in the, in the letter that Paul writes to the church at Philippi, pa Paul says of himself, when he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day, he, was al he also says, as to righteousness, I am blameless. In other words, uh, Paul, who was a Pharisee, was considered very righteous by other people. When he did fall short, though, he did all of the proper things to bring him back in line, all of the things that the law required. So even when you miss the law, there are things that you can do to get back right with the law. But then what is the consolation of Israel? What does that mean? Literally, the consolation of Israel is the hope of God's rescue and comfort for the people of Israel. Remember, at this moment, they are occupied people. Rome is occupying uh, Israel and Jerusalem. And they've had this hope literally for centuries. They've had this hope prophetically and messianically since before the Babylonian exile. So hundreds and hundreds of years. But the hope certainly did intensify under the yoke of the Romans. The last couple hundred years for the Jews had been absolutely horrible. And, and the idea was that Messiah was going to be a military and political Messiah that was going to come and restore power to Israel and sovereignty to Israel. But Isaiah 61, three, 61 verses 1 through 3 uh, uh, captures the hope of the consolation 700 years earlier, but you can also see that there is a prophetic message about what the Messiah really was going to look like. 
So this is 700 years earlier. Speaking of the Messiah, Isaiah writes this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty for the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now remember uh, a few weeks ago when we talked about how um, when Mary was told that she had found favor with God, I tried to remind us that, that just because we found favor with God doesn't mean we're going to find favor with people. In fact, usually it's just the opposite. Finding favor with God uh, makes us problematic for most people around us. So we read here that, that we're going to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, but that doesn't necessarily mean things are going to be easy. And the day of vengeance of our God, some of us look forward to that, but it's going to be pretty tough as well. And to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give the, to them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garments of praise instead of a faint spirit. I love that little, that little uh, meme right in there. That they may be called oaks of righteousness. And you know about an oak tree, right? Big and strong and sturdy and steadfast. That we would be called oaks of righteousness, not because we're so special, but because of the king, because of the Christ. The planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. So they, they knew this passage. They've been waiting for this for 700 years. And this hope finally um, arrived in the Messiah. And it included in the Messiah the forgiveness of sin and the saving of the lost. And here's what's hard. And that saving of the lost even include the, included the enemies of the Jews. Cody talked about this last week. The gospel is not just for the one who's imprisoned, but the one but for the one who is the captive, the captor. And we need to remember that. This passage uh, a couple of times emphasizes that salvation is for the Gentiles. Now, you just have to understand that when a Jew hears that salvation is for the Gentiles, it just kills them. It just, it, it, it's emotional. There's a visceral reaction but God has said from the very beginning, you're supposed to be the light. My people are supposed to be the light for this. We often forget this component. Now, look at Simeon. The Holy Spirit was on Simeon. Look at these next three verses. I'm sorry, I'll start again with 25 because I want you to see this. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. Three straight verses. Verse 25, the Holy Spirit was on Simeon. Verse 26, it was revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die until he had seen the Messiah, until he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now, I'm sorry, I have to take this little detour that might distract some of you, but for whatever reason, after 108 years, that verse, I think, actually has some metaphorical significance to Cubs fans, doesn't it? <laughs> there, 
there were people going, I just hope God lets me see the Cubs win a World Series. Okay, this, let me tell you, this is a bigger deal than the Cubs winning a World Series. This is like the Blackhawks winning another Stanley Cup, okay? That's how big of a deal. No, this is a bigger deal than sports. Bigger deal. And then verse 27, he came in the spirit into the temple. Is this passage really about Simeon or is it about the spirit? And who is the spirit? The spirit is God. This passage is about God and what he's doing through his people. If you struggle with this Holy Spirit character, I would say this passage is not for you. And there's some other issues we might have to unpack. I want to just talk, just, I'm going to stop here and talk a little bit about the Holy Spirit. I've got a couple of illustrations, maybe one illustration inside of another. It might be confusing, but I, I just, I want to talk about this because it's right here in the text. I think one of the biggest mistakes that you and I make with the Holy Spirit, we, we don't say this out loud because saying it out loud would sort of, we could just hear how goofy this is, but internally, this is the way we behave, and I'm right there with you. We believe the Holy Spirit is supposed to give us what we want and make us feel good about ourselves. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. Whatever scripture says, whatever God's real plan is, just give us what we want and make us feel good about ourselves. It's not, it's not the Holy Spirit of God, it's the Holy Spirit of self-esteem or whatever. The job of the Holy Spirit is to give us what we need, no matter how uncomfortable, give us what we need, and to point us to Jesus. The Holy Spirit is, is to give us what we need and to point us to Jesus. Uh, 20 years ago, when I was first entering into what I might call vocational ministry, uh, I began to realize that uh, the people of God... The kingdom of God uh, was not always going to look or think just like me. And, and I got to tell you something. That's growing up the way I grew up, that was not easy to wrestle with. Okay? And, and, and I had to start to deal with that. And, and for a while, I actually tried to run from it. You've heard my story about how I made a deal with God. I said, look, I'll go into, I'll go into pastoral ministry if I don't ever have to do prison ministry, okay? Because those people are certainly way different than me. What's one of my greatest passions right now? Prison ministry. So, so as I got more and more into this, I began to realize I, I've really got to figure out this thing that there's going to be people in the kingdom of God that that don't look like me, that don't act like me, and here you go, that don't think like me. That's the biggest challenge. It's not the different ethnicities or race or, or the biggest challenge is the way we think. Because you can, you can have a doppelganger that doesn't look like you, anything like you on the outside, but on the inside, whoa. Watch, you can have somebody that looks like, just like you on the outside, but doesn't think like you. So there's all sorts of ways that we have to deal with this. And so I, I prayed and prayed. And I, and I decided that one of the things that I had to do was I had to get much better with God's word. I, I just needed to read and study. And, and I'm not ta even talking about the Old Testament. One of the things I went to and started reading repeatedly and studying and digging into was the Old Testament. 
by the way, there's a lot more old than there is new. And, and some of it is a little bit more obscure. But one of the things that I found, there was just repeating patterns, repeating patterns, repeating patterns. God's people, Israel, always got in trouble when they were not God's people to everybody, including their enemies and the people that didn't think like them. That's when they got into trouble. That's when the prophets would go to the kings and speak those horrible things to the kings that the kings didn't like. That's also when I discovered um, great Old Testament scholar Nick Walterstorff, I can never say his name, but he talks about the quartet of the vulnerable that is clear and apparent in the Old Testament. That's the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the sojourner. And those are all people that are generally different that, that's what it's representing, that, that God's people are to care for them. And certainly we're to care for our own. Yes, that's in Scripture too. Care for our own. First to the people of the house of God. Yes, but it doesn't stop there. So the first thing I did was I got acquainted with how God really felt about this stuff. That was really helpful. I believe that was the Holy Spirit leading me in that direction. Then I specifically prayed that the Holy Spirit would move in me and do whatever it took. And I'll tell you, that was not easy. The Holy Spirit does not give us what we want and make us feel good. He gives us what we need, and he points us in the direction of Jesus, of the true, in, in the direction of the true gospel. I asked the Holy Spirit to move in me even if it made me uncomfortable, and in fact, especially if it made me uncomfortable. I don't say this to exalt myself. I didn't want to do it, but I was being prompted. Let me, let me tell you a little story. This is the illustration inside the illustration of how the Holy Spirit works. Now, he doesn't work like this all the time. In fact, I would suggest to you that this is not his regular MO, but occasionally he will work like this. It was very early in my ministry career, and I will just confess to you I did not like ministry at all. I was leading a church, a church that really looked like me, and, and a church that I was sure thought like me, um, but it wasn't, it wasn't the people who were different from me who were making me miserable in ministry. It was my people. It was my tribe. They were making me miserable. I confess to you, I hated my job. I, I was a year into this, and I'm like, I've got 10 years of schooling in for this, and now I'm in the middle of this, and this, sorry, sucks. People are a load. I don't know if you've noticed that. So I love to hike, and, and, and I, one of the things I do when I hike and when I run is, is I pray and I talk to God, and so I, I made a day of it one day. I said, all right, literally... I'm looking at guys who drive delivery trucks thinking, that must be the life. I'm look, I'm, those UPS uniforms were starting to look, I'm not kidding, they look good to me, man. My, my, my idea was, you know what, I go to work, I drive my truck, I make my deliveries, I drop the truck off, I go home, I get to order a pizza, drink a big gulp, burp, watch Netflix, go to bed. What a life. Nobody texting me, nobody emailing me, nobody calling me on the phone, nobody whining about what I said on Sunday morning. <laughs> okay, you know, I, li really, Jackie knew I was in trouble too. She was praying hard and very distressed. 
One of the, one of the greatest challenges, but I digress again, one of the greatest challenges in marriage, I don't know if you know this, is when one person is in great distress in work. That's one of the biggest reasons why there's conflict in marriage. It was a mess. And so I said, I'm going to go hike. Uh, there, was an obs- there is an obscure hike in central Arizona. You, once you get off the road, you have to drive on a trail for 15 miles to get to the trailhead. I wanted to be completely alone. And if I died, I didn't want to be discovered. That's how, you know. All right. So I go out there for this hike, about a five-hour hike. And I got to the hike, and I signed in. You know how they have those sign-in things? I was the first person to sign into the hike in six weeks. That's how obscure this hike was, okay? Beautiful hike, though. And the pro- purpose was I was going to do business with God. And I was going to do it on my terms. It was a fascinating five hours. I started the hike, and literally, I said out loud, God, Those UPS uniforms are looking mighty good to me. Give me one good reason why I shouldn't go to work for UPS because this job sucks. And I mean like this, like this. The Holy Spirit, not audibly, but clearly, clearly, the Holy Spirit spoke into my spirit and said, this is your problem, Frank, because you're looking at ministry as a job and not a calling. Figure it out. Now, was that the answer I wanted? Did that make me comfortable? Did that make me feel good about myself? Was the answer biblical? Yes. The answer was biblical. I started thinking about Paul and the trouble he went through. Not to mention that whole crucifixion of Jesus thing. That's why he's the perfect high priest. And so I didn't have anything to talk about with God for the rest of that hike. It was a wasted drive and a wasted hike. I could have asked him that in Phoenix. But the Spirit led me and dealt with me. And that's why I'm here today. And i got to tell you something. I'm glad. Ministry hasn't gotten any easier. But I love what ministry does because it's about Jesus and the gospel. And the Holy Spirit was the one that did that in my life. So the first thing is I pressed into God's word, especially the Old Testament. I, I asked the Holy Spirit to move in me. And then the third thing I did was I, by the power of the Spirit, I started to move aggressively towards relationships with people who looked and thought differently than me, no matter how painful that might have been. And it wasn't easy. But here's the thing. A lot of us pray that God would bring different people into our lives, and then we sit around and wait for it to happen. You know, you can answer your own prayer by going out and doing it. And so I started to do that. I spent years uh, as, as part of a team that ministered to the, how many of you have heard from, of the lost boys of Sudan, the, the African boys who had to walk a thousand miles and then if they won a lottery of sorts, they could become a refugee in the United States. Three primary cities, Phoenix, Atlanta, and Minneapolis. Spent years ministering to them. Uh, Bob Sadler, you're here. I think you remember that ministry very well. Uh, started doing that. Obviously, I got involved in prison ministry. Those guys are a little different. And it's amazing how often they minister to me even more than I minister to them. Here's the other thing I did. Um, 
I, I got a job teaching communication at Paradise Valley Community College, not a Christian college. I wanted to go somewhere else where I knew I was going to encounter worldviews that were not just different than mine, but diametrically opposed to mine and try to navigate through those waters. And it's been fantastic. But here's the other thing about, about being a teacher at PVCC. It, it's not just... Um, it's not just that people look a little bit differently than me. They're a little younger, but it is that generational thing. One of the biggest challenges that you and I have is the generational challenge. It's not just, that, it's not just race and ethnicity, but probably the most challenging area for us is in the generations. And Scripture is very clear about race and ethnicity, about we, how we reach out, but it's also clear about generations. What are the churches that die? They're one generational churches. They're one generational churches. This is one of the things I'm very thankful about. Redemption Church, not just our congregation, but all of our congregations are multi-generational congregations. That is so important. And when Flagstaff was planted, their lead pastor, Vince, one of the biggest things that he was praying for was not just that they would have 300 NAU students, but, they, that, that, but that, um, God would bring people who look like me into the ministry in Flagstaff. And God has done that. And it's been good for Flagstaff. So, so refugees, prisoners, college students... <laughs> This has been important, I, I think, in, in my development, and it's important in the development of all of us who are part of the kingdom. Uh, on, uh, alongside Ministries does a thing called Second Friday Nights, where they have a church service on Friday night for all of the ex-cons, all of the ex-cons families, all of the alongside Ministries staff and volunteers, and then all of the benefactors of alongside Ministries. A lot of them are, you know, kind of buttoned-down like this, you know, kind of types. And you walk into that service, you see the kingdom of God. You see young people. You see white people. You see black people. You see Hispanic people. You see people with tattoos and piercings. And you see people that, that actually shaved in the morning. That's what looks like. The, that's what the kingdom of God looks like. Salvation is for all people. Simeon and Anna are representing this. And by the way, it's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not us. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. All right, 28 through 35. And Simeon took Jesus up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, Mary, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. There's quite a bit there. Verses 29 through 31, it's the joy of God's promise to Simeon being fulfilled. He lived to see the Lord's Christ. And then verse 32, as, as said earlier, the consolation is not just about Israel, but it's about all people. 
It's called the consolation of Israel, but it's about everybody. And it's interesting that in such a Jewish context, who's mentioned first that the Messiah is for? The Gentiles. See, I just, we just, you, you really read this stuff, and it starts to pound away at your, your presuppositions. But then again, we also know from Scripture that one of the big parts of God's glory is when God's people love their community, love their neighbors, love their enemies, and are shown the light of God. That, that, that's when God really receives glory. God receives glory when we are saved, when our hearts are turned from stone into genuine flesh for the Lord, and then when we go out. We are gospel-centered and outward focus, and then when we go out and we share that revelation and that reality with other people. And then verses 34 and 35, what in the world do they mean? Could you put that slide back up just so they can see these, these um, the verses 34 and 35, the end of it? So they can see these clauses. The fall and the rising, what is that about? It means that the judgment of the arrogant and the haughty is going to be complemented by the rescue of the meek and humble. In order to accept the reality of the Christ, of God, and to submit to the Holy Spirit in your life, that takes humility. That takes, that takes being meek and humble. It doesn't mean you aren't filled with ambition. It just means that you recognize who God is and who you are. And we can't get away from that theme in Scripture that, that, that God exalts the humble. And he's really got an issue with the proud. Also, as we said, his salvation is for all people. But in addition... This narrative reminds us that God's judgment is also for all people. There's another side to this thing. If there's a need for salvation, there's also the reality of judgment and condemnation. And the judgment and the condemnation is going to come for those people who do not come in repentance and faith to Jesus. They will be condemned. And then there's that clause, and, and for a sign that is opposed. This foretells of the future opposition to Jesus. And there was opposition to Jesus, right? But it was not just the opposition to Jesus that Jesus had in his own ministry, but it's the opposition that all of Jesus' people throughout time will have. And Jesus said, you know, they, they hate me, they're going to hate you. They persecute me, they're going to persecute you. So it's this opposition that goes on and on and on until he comes again. And then the sword piercing through your own soul also is specifically directed at Mary, foretelling of her anguish at seeing her son crucified. You know, at the end, they speared Jesus with a sword to make sure he was dead. Jesus got the sword, but Mary felt the sword. She felt it. And then so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. What does that mean? Well, the thoughts of many hearts reminds us that there are two roads. Roads. There's, there's a heart that's given to Jesus, and there's a heart that's still entrenched in sin and our own false gods. A person can look really, really good on the outside and appear to be a, a good moral person, but if the heart is still corrupt because it's not been given to Jesus, this heart will be exposed and will be judged. The heart given to Jesus will also be revealed in other words, there is a road to redemption and there is a road to condemnation. And Jesus is the road to redemption. He is the people's champion and salvation is for everybody.
And then you look at the story of Anna, verses 36 through 38. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting and prayer night and day. Coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. So just do the math. She married at 15. Her husband died when she was 22. She lived as a widow for 62 years until she was 84. But she is a faithful and persistent woman. That's what this scripture is telling us. She, she prayed, she fasted, and she worshiped. And I will say that God reveals his will to those who earnestly seek it. Seek it in his word. Seek it in community with other people who know God. Seek it, seek it in his presence, which doesn't always feel right, I know. But then also seek it in circumstances. Circumstances also can reveal God's will to us. And really, all she wanted to know was this. Is there going to be redemption? It's redemption. This is what everyone needs and everyone wants, though it may not always be at the forefront of thought, but it's the greatest need we have, and it is satisfied in one place, in one person, and that is Jesus. Jesus said on the cross, it's finished. The rest is just commentary. There's nothing to add to this. And, and it's not just the cross. It's not just that we're forgiven. Forgiveness without life really doesn't mean anything. That's why there has to be the resurrection. Because that's where the power to live this out. Salvation is a destination, but I'm telling you, we're here now. So salvation is also the working out of our salvation, the sanctification, the walking in power by the power of the Holy Spirit to do the will of the Lord and to be his people. And so the resurrection gives us that. And the resurrection was, was God's affirmation that the crucifixion is sufficient for our forgiveness. And that means that we live joyful and grateful lives of response to God. We don't initiate with God. We respond to God. We're not the initiators. He is. We love and we serve and we sacrifice. Jesus, he's the greatest gift, the son. I, I, I think I began to understand what happened at the cross a little bit better when I started having children. I would say that life's most tragic event is when you outlive your child. And there may be somebody in this room who's experienced that. And it's devastating. I have a, I have a friend in another association, he's going through this right now. His son, no explanation, passed away. Shelby or Dar if Shelby, something happened to Shelby or Darby, it would, it, would, it would kill me. Understand, God watched his child be executed so that we could have life. And he was executed by people who thought they were more righteous and knew better than God. Do you understand that? The second thing that it makes me think about is, I, I'm sorry, I, I'm your pastor. I, I do love you, but I think there's a human limit on my love for you. I, I would not allow Shelby or Darby to be sacrificed for your sin. 
tough darts. I wouldn't, but God did. By the way, I don't have to either because God did. God did. You want to talk about the greatest love story in the history of the world? It's John 3, 16. God loved the world so much. He gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would never perish but have everlasting life. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for what a great gift that is. We should just be overwhelmed at your love and your grace. God, help us be empowered by that. Fill us with your spirit. Let us seek you and your son Jesus. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we